This is They Create Worlds, episode 188. We'll write Sim City. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be. A land that's called reality. You'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Today we get to do a biography. Not an autobiography or a bibliography. Bibliography? I'm not sure how that works. What's important is that we need to learn about a person. A person that made great cities rise and fall and rise and fall. And then Maxis went out of business. The end. I believe they were purchased by Electronic Arts. Yeah, went out of business. <laughs> But this isn't actually a look at Maxis in its totality, because as Jeffrey said, this is a biography, and what we will be doing is looking at the very interesting career of one Mr. Will Wright, who of course was very central to the company of Maxis, but that's not his whole identity. Nor is Will Wright quite the entire identity of Maxis, though it gets kind of close to that. Okay, let's skip over the boring bit. He was born, he was raised by some parents. May or may not have had some siblings. Then he made SimCity. Uh, yes, that is all in its own way true, I suppose. But no, with Will Wright, we have to start with the childhood, because Will Wright is certainly one of the most interesting game designers, a unique individual, quite possibly one of the greatest geniuses, like literal bona fide geniuses, to ever turn his hand to game design. Certainly unique in his outlook on how to design games and on what even makes a game. Because, of course, SimCity, which we'll be talking about in great detail later on in the uh, podcast in this episode, was absolutely revolutionary in its day for being a game that did not have one-loss conditions. It was a sandbox. It was a toy. Today, there are so many games like that that are incredibly popular. Uh, Minecraft, obviously, the most prominent that comes to mind, as well as another Will Wright creation, The Sims, which has gotten a little more deterministic over time, but also started out more as a toy box. When Wright was conceiving of SimCity, this was just not something that you did with games. Games were things that had objectives, goals win conditions, and you met those conditions, or you didn't, and you beat the game, or you died, lost all your lives, saw the big game over screen, whatever. What about Elite? Even Elite had a goal. Elite was a sandbox. Elite gave you many ways to accomplish your goal. It did not prescribe to you the method in which you would rise to the rank of the Elite. So it had the opportunity for emergent gameplay and for different people to play it in different ways, doing supply runs, being a police officer, essentially going pirate, etc. But at the end of the day, you were still looking to be the elite. There was still a win condition. And once you reached that win condition, you had conquered the game. But that's not what Will Wright was about. Will Wright was not just providing an open world in the sense of an elite. He was providing a true sandbox in the sense that here are a bunch of tools, go play with them and do whatever you want. 
set your own goals or don't set goals. Just keep playing until you get bored. Just like a kid playing in a sandbox. Maybe they make up their own little games. Maybe they decide that they need to take all of that sand there and put it into that pile over there before rolling it into that vat of acid there. That isn't inherent to being a sandbox. That is a game that the child has decided to play. Another child may just sit there and shuffle sand between their hands for a while. Another one might decide that this is really a great bathroom and pee in the sandbox, but we we won't go there. Won't go there. What Will Wright was creating at that time was, to some people, including many publishers that he initially talked to, not any kind of game at all. So we really need to examine Will Wright the man and Will Wright the boy where he came from, what his influences were, not just from a game-playing perspective, but just from a general-life philosophy perspective, and how this melded with an accidental, in some ways, career in game design that led to the creation of two of the most influential games of all time, SimCity and The Sims. Okay, so I guess we have to roll back from where I decided to start this thing and go back to where he's playing in that sandbox and decided, you know, I want to build a city. (laughs) Absolutely. So Will Wright was born in 1960 in what is currently my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. So that means you get to interview him directly, right? Well, he hasn't lived in Georgia for a very, very long time. Darn. His family, his father's side, was a distinguished line of engineers. Both his father, Will Wright Sr., and his grandfather were graduates of Georgia Tech University in Atlanta, very fine engineering school. They both had engineering degrees. Then he had a little bit of that creative side as well, though, because his mother, Beverly, was an amateur magician and actress, hailing from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. His father was a quite good engineer. He worked in plastics, and he actually came up with a new method, a new process of creating packing material out of plastic, and parlayed that into a very, very, very successful plastic company. They were a pretty well-off family. Young Will, he really is something of a genius. I mean, he's highly, highly intelligent. From a very young age, he was highly, highly, highly inquisitive. He loved learning new things. He loved reading. He loved amassing knowledge. But then on top of that, very much the engineering side of the family tree coming out, is that he also enjoyed building. He didn't just want to read about something, though he did want to do that as well, because he did love reading. He wanted to read about something, and then he wanted to engage with it, interact with it, understand it. If he read something about the Wright brothers and the beginning of flight, he would want to build his own model, not a life-size model, but like a scale model, of the Wright flyer, so that he isn't just reading about the physics that allowed this thing to take flight, but he's seeing them firsthand and able to understand them himself. He loves engineering, he loves architecture, he loves buildings, and he loves models. He loves learning, and he loves playing with things. Then on top of that, he is a dreamer. He is a voracious reader, not just of nonfiction, but also of science fiction. He uh, loved Isaac Asimov, one of the foundational writers of science fiction, He loved a Polish author by the name of Stanislaw Lem, 
who is probably most famous for his story Solaris. I've not read Lim myself, so I, I can only speak from a passing understanding, but Lim was somebody who really kind of explored, in a way, the insignificance of man in the larger universe. Stories of first contact in which mankind is sometimes incapable of understanding other life forms. He has great old civilizations with, you know, these advanced understandings of mathematical principles and scientific principles and these almost godlike beings that are able to use some of these mathematical and scientific principles to achieve power over others. He focuses a lot on mechanical constructs and mechanical life. Sounds akin to H.P. Lovecraft and cosmic horror. It's not horror that he writes in so much. I mean, it's not eldritch in that sense. If there is something that's similar to Lovecraft, it is this idea that man is a small thing and a sometimes insignificant things within the grand span of the cosmos. But it's not eldritch in that sense, and it's not necessarily horror. But it's just kind of the greater possibilities that exist out in the universe and the greater level of scientific and mathematical advancement that can lead to incredible things. He's growing up in the 1960s. This is, of course, the period of time of the space race and the Apollo program. He's fascinated by NASA. His father is pretty fascinated by this stuff as well. They'd spend time, you know, just talking together, looking up at the stars and dreaming about space and contact with other species and just what all could be out there. And there is nothing that Will Wright, young Will Wright Jr., wanted to be more than an astronaut who would actually go off into space and would build colonies out in the cosmos and be a great explorer of things. That's a lot of different aspects to his personality. He's very engineering-driven, practical-driven, a builder, a model maker, someone who wants to understand the way things work mechanically and the way systems work. He's a lover of knowledge, of just learning about new things and always reading more, seeing more, understanding more. And he's something of a dreamer that wants to believe in not the fantastic, really, because it's all rooted in science, but wants to believe in greater possibilities and greater things that can be happening. While I'm sure some of this was his personality and some of it was his parents and some of it was his genetics, all of this was also further enhanced in his young years because from the kindergarten through the sixth grade, he was educated in a Montessori school. Are you familiar with the concept of the Montessori school? I'm not even sure I've heard of it until now. Mm-hmm. Montessori schools, which are scattered around, you can find them here and there out there. It's all based on the educational theories of an Italian woman by the name of Maria Montessori. In a time, late 19th, early 20th century, in a time when learning in secondary education, elementary, middle school, high school, whatever— was really rooted in rote recall. Learn facts, recite facts. Learn how to do something, demonstrate how to do something. Montessori believed that this stifled the impulse to learn in most children in the long run and would actually stifle their growth into the best versions of themselves. 
just like there's somebody who likes just about anything, there are some people who thrive in a rote, repeat-back kind of situation like that, lecture, recite, test, repeat kind of environment. Most kids are going to find that boring. They're going to find it dull. And while they may get through it, it's going to stifle their desire to learn new things and adapt to new things as they move through life. Montessori's idea was that instead of shoving material down a kid's throat, you should instead let a child discover their own interests and discover their own love of learning by allowing them largely undirected experience time, where instead of you lecturing them, you give them a choice of a few different activities. I mean, you don't let them just run completely wild. You have to have a little structure, or they'll probably just all go off and piss in the sandbox or something. But offer them an activity toy of some kind that they can play with and do some activities with and kind of discover how it works themselves and in so doing, learn about things on their own. Don't learn about geometry by memorizing a bunch of theorems and writing out a bunch of proofs. Learn geometry by being given a set of building blocks and building something with them, for example. And then having someone there to help explain why certain shapes work better together, Mm -hmm. why the arch has such strength to it, Mm -hmm. how you can build this, build that with a minimal amount of materials. But make it about discovery instead of about lecture. As you begin to understand where the child's true talents, abilities, and interests lie, start more and more nudging them in the direction of those things so that they flourish and not just succeed in the moment, but also come to see learning as an exciting and fun activity, something that they'll want to keep pursuing on their own, even when they don't have a teacher saying that you have to do this or you're going to flunk. So that's the schooling that Will Wright had, and uh, I'm sure you can see, as with how I already described his personality, that this was just a, a great environment for young Will to thrive in. That's exactly what he enjoyed. He, he enjoyed the process of discovery. He enjoyed the process of modeling things himself. And I think we can also see how Will Wright may have become the creator of what we now call the software toy, out of all of this, too, with something like a SimCity. As Will Wright himself has said in interviews, it was not a conscious decision to apply Montessori techniques to game design. It's not like he was like, you know what would be cool? It would be cool if a video game or a computer game was like a Montessori curriculum. None of that happened. He was not trying to prove a point in that way. But, as he has said in interviews, there's no doubt that subconsciously he absorbed that idea and that method of engaging with items and engaging with activities, this no doubt influenced the path that his game design would take. Will's life changed in 1969, when he was nine years old, and his father died of leukemia. They stayed in the area a while longer, but eventually his mother moved him and his younger sister. He did have one sibling, to bring up the point you made at the beginning of the episode about how there might be some. There were. She, at that point, decided to take them back to her home in uh, Louisiana. They moved to Baton Rouge. The Montessori education stopped at that point. He went to a religious preparatory school, not 
preparing to be religious, but, uh, you know, run by, I think it was Episcopal. As he said, you know, it was a different academic environment, though not necessarily a horrible environment, though he does say that it was at that school that he became an atheist. He would have long philosophical conversations with teachers and whatnot, and that shaped his atheism, which I don't know is particularly important to his game development influences, but, you know, we'll throw it in there for a little completionist's sake. Another thing that he really fell in love with there as he was getting older, it's more because he got older than that he moved, is he got more and more into building models of tanks and airplanes and cars and all of these things. He had a friend that lived down the street that he became close to, and they would build these models together. He was also introduced to the world of board wargaming, games from Avalon Hill and SSI, cardboard cutouts, hexes, the works. He got very interested in those kind of board war games as well, which were experiencing a period, probably their period of greatest popularity in the 50s and 60s. I suppose by this time it's the 70s. Perhaps not as popular as they had been just a few years before, but still, this was kind of the heyday of those kind of games. He definitely took to that as well. He loved military history, so in addition to all of this engineering stuff and architecture stuff, military history fascinated him, military war games fascinated him, so he is getting an introduction in that sense to game systems as well. If there's one thing he was not in any way, shape, or form interested in, however, it was the computer. Zero interest. He likes to manipulate things. He likes being hands-on with things. He likes playing with things, discovering things. And the computers at the time, which were primarily still your batch-processing mainframe computers, were not that. You got your stack of punch cards together. You took them to the operator's office. The operator took custody of them, fed them through the machine, handed you back the results. You hope you got a good result. If you didn't, you try to decipher the error messages you get, figure out where the error in your cards were, and try again next week. Now, by this time, there was some real-time computing, and there were some mini-computers, there were some smaller computers, but on the whole, computing was still batch processing, it was not very interactive, and certainly Will Wright never had access to any interactive computers. So, what little he knew of computers, these big hulking mainframes, in no way interested him. He was first exposed to these computers when he went to college, which stands to reason. He was an incredibly brilliant, incredibly aimless college student, who, by the way, started college at the age of 16. So accelerated program through high school. Accelerated program through high school. I mean, he's really smart. His problem, if he can be said to have a problem, is that he loves so many things so much, he doesn't want to sit down and focus on any one thing. He spends two years at Louisiana State, then transfers to Louisiana Tech and spends another two years there. He just keeps bouncing around subjects. He does a little military history here. He does a little economics there. He does some mechanical engineering. He does some architecture. He's all over the place. He never actually creates himself a solid major and gets around to doing things like getting all of his required courses out of the way and like, you know, graduating. So he spends four years in college. He spends four years learning and he never graduates. He never focuses on one subject, one topic, one academic field of study enough to actually graduate from either of the two colleges he attended. 
Kind of reminds me of that person from Discworld who worked really, really hard to never graduate from Unseen University, <laughs> but just hard enough to never fail out because he had a very generous package from his grandparents or his father where they would pay for school and living expenses as long as he didn't flunk out or graduated. So he managed to be a professional student for a very, very <laughs> long time. You know, Will Wright, I mean, he wasn't just, uh, you know, skating by, you know, barely passing classes or anything. He was genuinely interested in everything he was doing. It's just that he never bothered to figure out a major. And, you know, there was some money to spend to allow him to keep going to school. His father's company still existed. His father's company was very successful. You know, his father's dead, but the company's very successful. And he has a trust that his father set up for him. I mean, his father knew he was dying of cancer, so there was time to make arrangements. There was a trust. He was a trust fund kid in a way. I mean, I don't know how large a trust it was. It's not like they were billionaires or anything. But there wasn't that impetus. There wasn't that great need to focus on getting through, getting a degree, getting a career, because there was some money. He just loved learning, and he just loved too many topics. One day he's interested in mechanical engineering. The next day he's interested in economics. The next day it's architecture that's sparking him. And it's not that he necessarily falls out of love with any of these things. I mean, he continues to love mechanical engineering, economics, architecture. All of this stuff plays into his games like SimCity and The Sims. It's just that he'll go really hard on one topic and then be like, okay, now I've learned a lot about that topic. Now I'd like to go learn about something else. And so that's what he was doing in college. So then after these four years, the latest thing to truly spur his interest, and he really was deeply interested, was the field of robotics. Once again, this was sparked in large part by his science fiction loves as much as any practical advancements in robotics that had been made, which by this time there had been some. He particularly loved Star Wars and the droids in Star Wars. All of this was igniting a new passion in robotics. He transferred schools once again in 1980 and moved, this time out of Louisiana, all the way to New York City to attend the prestigious New School to study robotics there. In addition to whatever coursework he was doing, he started prowling all the surplus electronics stores along Canal Street, which was kind of where they were all clustered back then scrounging all the strange bits and bobs he could to start building his own scrappy little robots at home as well. You know, just simple robotic things. Not talking building C-3PO here, just talking about little robotic arms and robotic this and robotic that, using whatever parts he could scrounge. He also, at this time, became very interested in cars, and in 1981, he actually answered an ad in a car magazine placed by an individual named Richard Doherty, who was looking for a partner to help him soup up a car and then race it across the country from New York to Redondo Beach, California, in a uh, cross-country race inspired by the movie The Cannonball Run. Burt Reynolds movie that depicted an illegal cross-country race where a bunch of people are starting on one side of the country and their goal is to get to the other side of the country, but it's not a prescribed track. It's just you have to get from point A to point B faster than anyone else, as fast as you can. So this involves driving at night when there's little traffic and not always having your headlights on and going 130 miles per hour on the highway like you're not supposed to and all of this stuff. Cannonball Run. 
Wright answered that ad and worked with him, and they souped up this car together. Will Wright advised that they take a southern route. His partner was kind of confused by this because the southern route was a longer route. It was not the most direct route in terms of the highways you could take. But what Will Wright told him, because Will Wright was from the South, Will Wright told him, we want to take the southern route because we're probably going to get stopped somewhere by someone for speeding. I can get us out of a ticket if we're pulled over by a southern cop. (laughs) So they did it. They took the southern route. They were indeed in the state of Georgia, stopped by a police officer at one point when they were doing something like 120 miles an hour, a little bit over the speed limit. And they were driving at night with their headlights off. Will Wright was able to convince this police officer that they were test drivers and engineers for an automotive company that was testing a new state-of-the-art vehicle, and that's why they needed to be doing what they were doing. However he phrased that, whatever else he did, I have no idea. The cop was convinced and let them go on their way, and they did ultimately win the race going the Southern Route and even set a new record for uh, fastest time doing this particular race, something like 35 hours, I think, in some odd. That's the entire country. (laughs) That's very, very impressive. (laughs) Again, I'm not sure what that has to do necessarily with his video game career. It's not like he went on and then created Gran Turismo. That was somebody else. But it's another interesting anecdote about the young Will Wright that gets repeated a lot. And so we will repeat it here as well. Unlike the automotive stuff, the robotics actually directly did influence his career, because even though he once again left school after attending the new school for one year, he called it quits there, too. We're now up to five years of university with nothing approaching a degree. The robotics passion was blooming during this entire time that he was at the school, and he had a friend in New York that was involved in the nascent home computer, microcomputer, whatever you want to call it at this stage, industry. This friend of his was buying up Apple IIs at wholesale. This is, again, 1980, so the Trinity have been out for about three years at this point. He buys Apple IIs at wholesale, modifies them heavily to make them suitable for use in doctor's offices for whatever it is that these doctors need the computers for. I don't know if it's for records management or what, but he's specifically tailoring them for use in doctor's offices and then reselling them to doctor's offices to make a profit. I don't know for sure if it was this friend that first exposed him to microcomputers or if he just started coming across microcomputers in general at this time because microcomputers were starting to be more widespread by 1980. The Trinity hits in 1977, VisiCalc hits in 1979, the first killer app. So by 1980, you're starting to see this permeation of microcomputers a little more in society, even though it's still a relatively small niche at this point. Whether it was through this friend or some other method, he saw microcomputers for the first time, and unlike the computers that he was familiar with from his early college years back in Louisiana, these were computers that you could directly interact with, that you were hands-on with, could directly program. He thought that these could be very useful in his robotics work. Because, of course, having robots, things that move around and whatnot, you need to be able to program them to do this and that thing. So he saw a microcomputer as something useful to further his robotics work. He ends up buying an Apple II from this friend of his. He gets a very good price on it because his friend is getting them at a wholesale price and then souping them up. So his friend gets them for a relatively cheap price, and then he sold it to his 
but he will at a smaller margin than a regular computer retailer would. So he got an Apple II computer for a reasonable price. I don't know the exact price, but it was apparently below suggested retail price. And started visiting what he described as New York's only computer store. It may not have been the only computer store in New York City, but that's how Will Wright described it. And certainly at this point, at this juncture, there would not have been too many. And uh, started looking at what software was there as a way to start to understand how this computer works. One of the first, if not the first, program that he bought for his brand new Apple II was the game Flight Simulator. Now, these days, we think of it as Microsoft Flight Simulator, but back in 1980 was before the Microsoft affiliation. This was the very first version of Bruce Artwick's Flight Simulator. He was very impressed at the fact that Flight Simulator modeled a complete world within it. Now, is that world just a handful of wireframes? Sure. We're not talking about some immersive virtual reality photorealistic experience. It was still modeling a world you could fly around over this landscape, and the characteristics of your plane were painstakingly simulated, and you had instruments that were giving you accurate readouts based on these simulated conditions, and you were flying around a world, even if it was a world composed of a few small wireframes. This started to ignite his passion for computer games. I mean, he's still primarily doing the robotics thing at this point, but he starts getting very interested in computer games, and he starts playing others as well. He discovers Bill Budge's Raster Blaster, which we've talked about before, Pinball Simulator. He discovers that those crazy military history games, military war games that he played from Avalon Hill and SPI and whatnot a few years earlier in the 70s, are starting to show up on computers as well. He sees some of the early SSI games, strategic simulations, which was involved in war games, uh, Computer Ambush being one that he spent a particularly great amount of time playing. But above all else, he becomes truly, truly fascinated by John Conway's Game of Life. I think we've probably talked about life at some point before on the podcast. No, we're not talking about the board game. We're not talking about being a winner at the game of life here. We are talking about the game, question mark, simulation of cellular automata called Life, created by John Conway. What this is, is it's, like I said, a cellular automata program. It's about the propagation of stuff, of cells. It has very simple rules. The way it works, it's more simulation than game because you don't have any impact on it outside of your initial setup. You have a grid of cells, and at the beginning of the simulation, you have a certain number of little one-celled things that you can place in a starting configuration on the board. And then once you've put your starting positions in place, you start the simulation, and then these cells, these little organisms, if you want to call them that, though obviously the graphics are very primitive, it's not like it's really an organism, but these organisms propagate based on a very simple set of rules. If you have a live cell, a cell that's occupied by a living thing, that has fewer than two live neighbors next to it in adjoining cells, it dies. 
If you have a cell that has two or three neighbors, fewer than two, it dies. Two or three neighbors, it lives into the next generation. If there are more than three other live cells around it, it dies due to overpopulation. If you have a dead cell where something has died that is surrounded by exactly three live neighbors, it comes back to life, simulating reproduction. You designate a set number of live cells at the beginning of the simulation, and then you just let it run. It's real time. It just starts propagating. But every quote-unquote turn, it checks to see how many live cells are in contact and how many live and dead cells are surrounding a cell and then propagates based on those rules. And then it does it again and propagates, does it again and propagates until it gets to the point where it can't do anything else anymore until everything's dead, essentially. You can never have a state where everything's alive because, of course, if you have more than three neighbors, you die. So basically the simulation keeps running until everything dies, but you see the pattern of propagation across the board. This simple program was fascinating to a whole generation, maybe multiple generations, of computer users, computer scientists, because it's such a small set of rules, but just uncounted permutations. Will Wright himself compared it, which is a very apt comparison to the game of Go, the ancient Japanese game, which can unfold in so many different ways, even though the rules are very simple. Place your stones on the board, and then the way the stones are arranged and how they touch each other determines what moves you can make in the future. Simple rules, but endless permutations based on the way you set up your board. Life is the very same way. So as he put it, he lost hours and hours and hours to just running life simulations over and over and over again and seeing what the results were. Like I said, he wasn't the first. Game of Life had existed since about 1970 and had taken over computer labs at places like MIT and Stanford well before it fired Will Wright's imaginations. It's one of the most widespread popular simulation programs from that period of time. It was the Game of Life that inspired him to become a better and better programmer. Because he was starting off just programming in AppleSoft Basic, just as any neophyte programmer does, they usually start with Basic because it's a simple language. But of course, as we've talked about many times before, BASIC is a very, very slow language because its ease of use sacrifices efficiency. Pretty soon, he realized that when he was running the game of life in BASIC, he programmed his own life game in BASIC, it was running very slow. He realized that if he went to a more sophisticated high-level programming language, like, say, Pascal, he could run it a lot faster. So he learned how to program in Pascal so he could port his Game of Life variant into Pascal. Then, of course, he came to the realization that, well, you know, high-level languages are, are always going to be slower than just going straight to the metal because they're interpreted languages. There always has to be that translation between the program and the machine language that is unique to the machine in question, which always provides some slowdown. These days, computers are so fast that we use the versatility of a high-level language over machine language because we can't really tell the darn difference in speed anymore, but you can do a whole lot more complex things with a high-level language. But back in those days, there was really much more of a trade-off in doing something in a high-level language as opposed to doing something in machine language. So then he learned machine language, Apple II machine language, so that here, 6502, 
machine language so that he could run his life program even faster. Through the game of life, he started to become an accomplished programmer. Meanwhile, during the period of time that all of this is going on, he was doing the robotics thing at the new school. He once again, after a year, left the new school and came back home, came back to Louisiana, Baton Rouge, still without any idea about what he's really going to be doing in life. But remember, he started college young. He started college at 16. So at this point, 1981, he is only 21 years old. He's still at an age when most people are in college. He's only just becoming an adult, even though he's been in college for five years. He's only 21. So he has some leeway there. Exactly. The family, you know, his mom and whatever, had always hoped that he would eventually just take over the family business. Well, like Dustin Hoffman's character in The Graduate, he had no interest in the exciting new world of plastics. So that was a non-starter, and eventually the family sold the business. Will Jr., our Will Wright, never took that over. At this point, you know, he's back home. He's back in Baton Rouge, but he's not living at home. He's an adult. He doesn't want to live in mom's basement. I don't even know if they have a basement, but that's not important. Whether they had one or not, he didn't want to live there. So he's actually living with a friend, you know, an old friend. Still fooling around with robotics, fooling around with computer games, fooling around with programming. At this point, His friend's sister, one Joelle Jones, also returns home. Joelle was 11 to 12 years. I've seen it both ways, so it may just depend on where the birthdays fall, but is about 11 or 12 years older than Will Wright. Will Wright's 21. Joelle is in her 30s. They knew each other a little bit because he had been friends with her brother back before he went off to college, and she had been around a little bit then. So they kind of knew each other a little bit, but they weren't close. She was an artist, a painter, and a social activist in California, in the Bay Area. There had been an accident. I don't know the details. It somehow involved a glass window, and she ended up severing a nerve in her wrist. Not a great thing for an artist. She was looking at a long recovery period, and so she came home to recover from her wrist injury. She was around. You know, Will was rooming with her brother. They got to know each other a little more. They got to talking. They were somewhat opposites in some ways. Will Wright would go on and on about how great it would be to explore the cosmos and be an astronaut and build colonies on distant worlds. Joelle, uh, as I said, a social activist from Social Activision Central, (laughs) Bay Area of California, said that what's the point in founding colonies out in the cosmos when we can't even feed all the people that we have here? We need to take care of our problems at home here on planet Earth rather than dreaming about the stars. But I think they had a lot of conversations about this and a lot of debates and that kind of thing. He also, back to the robotics thing, he created this contraption for her out of metal scraps and rubber bands for her arm, for her wrist, that allowed her to have a greater range of motion somehow during this period of time when she was recuperating. Through all of this, despite the age difference, they fell in love. When in 1982, after a year recuperating, Joelle was going back to Oakland, back to the Bay Area after recuperating, Will asked if he could come too. She said, sure. So they went out and uh, lived together in Oakland. And then uh, eventually, I think in 1984, they got married. 
you know, at this point, it's probably, you know, I mean, I, I think he's still doing okay financially with the, the family money and everything. But at this point, it's it's probably a good idea to start getting a better idea of maybe doing something. He decided that since he was playing these video games so much, that maybe he should try to make his own. You know, he's learned programming. He's been fooling around with the game of life. He knows machine language. He knows some high-level languages. He understands how computers work. He's played a lot of games, you know, the Bill Budge games, Nasir Gabelli's games, who made these great action games with uh, amazing graphics uh, for the time on the Apple II. He's, he's done these various types of games, and he's it's like, yeah, why don't I try this? At the very least, if nothing else, it means that I can deduct all of this uh, computer stuff I've been buying uh, for tax purposes because I'm using it for work. So on about 1982-ish, when he moved back to California with uh, his girlfriend, later to be wife, Joelle, he decides that he's going to make a computer game. But he decides he doesn't want to do it on the Apple II. Will Wright may be something of a dreamer. He may be something of a unfocused, learn a little of this, learn a little bit of that, scholarly kind of guy. But that doesn't mean he doesn't also have a pretty good and shrewd head on his shoulder. He realizes that, you know, by 1982, the Apple II has been out since 1977. Interesting games didn't really start appearing until about 1980 because we had to wait for the Apple II Plus and more people to have more memory in their computers. We needed to wait for people to have 48K of memory in their computers most of the time rather than 8 or 16K most of the time in order to make games interesting enough on the Apple II to be really impressive. You know, been around since 77. Interesting games have been coming out since 1980. The people that have been working on the Apple II, the Bill Budges and the Sierra Gabellis of the world, have gotten really good at using the Apple II and making games on the Apple II at this point. Will Wright is just getting started, and he thinks to himself, if I make a game on the Apple II, I'm still learning. My game is going to look really basic compared to the amazing things being done by people like Nasir Gabelli or Dan Gorlin, who created Choplifter, or Bill Budge, any of these guys. And nobody's going to want my game, because it's going to look stupid in comparison. So instead, he decides to target the Commodore 64, because the Commodore 64 is brand new. It's still based on the 6502 microprocessor. It's the 6510, but it's, it's a variation. So it's still a processor he's familiar with from his Apple II programming. Obviously, it has support chips that are more advanced, like the VIC, uh, the video chip, and the SID, the amazing sound chip. You know, it still kind of understands it, but it's, it's a level playing field because everyone's going to be starting at the same time on the Commodore 64. The Nasirs and Budges of the world are not going to have an advantage over me on the Commodore 64. So he goes out and buys a Commodore 64 pretty soon right after it came out. He decides to make that the target platform for his game. The other very shrewd thing he does is he decides that because the Commodore 64 is this brand new computer, he wants to make sure to create something on this computer that could not be done well on the Apple II. Something that is going to stand out against all of those games that are created on the Apple II. And so what he discovers is a great strength of the Commodore 64 compared to the Apple II, is that it's relatively easy to write routines that will allow you to scroll the screen in any direction 
smoothly and create this wider world. You know, the Apple II relies on a bitmap of the entire screen. It doesn't have what we today call sprites. It doesn't have the ability to independently update parts of the screen very well. So the Apple II is not a great platform for scrolling. There were a few scrolling games that were made for it, but that was definitely not its forte. Whereas on the Commodore 64, which uses a very different architecture, it's a lot easier to create a colorful for the time. I mean, nothing had that many colors back then, but colorful for the time scrolling world. So he decides that that's what he's going to do. He's going to create, as he put it, a world you could get lost in. A big world composed of many, many screens. I think in the end it was composed of a hundred screens. But it's not flick scrolling, it's smooth scrolling. You know, it's a hundred screens, but it's not like you're flicking between them. It's smooth scrolling throughout. And he just wants to create a world you can get lost in. So big that you feel like you're almost getting lost in it. Then he decides that he wants this to be an action game featuring a helicopter. Because he's just always really loved helicopters. At a fair when he was really young, he got to go up on a helicopter ride uh, with his father. That really fascinated him, and there was a show he really loved on TV when he was a kid called Wild Kingdom. It was a show about animals, and they would highlight different animals and whatnot, but as he put it in a talk that he gave on the creation of this game, it seemed like every single episode would end with these people getting in a helicopter and chasing down a herd of animals so that they could tranquilize one for further study. The show had a lot of helicopter, quote-unquote, action scenes as they're going out to tranquilize the animals. So he's just always been fascinated with helicopters. So he decides he's going to create a helicopter action game that is set in a large world that takes advantage of the scrolling capabilities of the Commodore 64. That is how we get Will Wright's debut game in 1984, Raid on Bungling Bay. As an action game, it's a pretty typical action game. You're in a helicopter. It's an overhead view. You're attacking this series of islands, this archipelago, several islands. So the world is made up of ocean and then islands within the ocean. Your job is to destroy all of the enemy factories on all of these islands. These factories are protected by various defenses, so you have to avoid the defenses, avoid getting shot down, and you have to destroy all the factories. On its surface, it's a pretty bog-standard action game. I mean, it did not do anything that pushed the state of the art forward in action game design. But it is interesting that even at this early date, even at this early time, he's very interested in the world and the way the world works and the way all the parts of the world interact with each other. Even though the player is just flying around the screen shooting at things and avoiding enemies, there is a complete simulated world going on underneath. There are resources, there's like oil or whatever in the water. There are boats that are going out to these resource nodes and collecting the resources, the oil or whatever. Then they're driving it back to a tank on one of the islands. That tank then drives the oil to the factory in the middle of the island. Then the factory uses that resource to build its defenses and rebuild its defenses as you destroy them. 
There are anti-aircraft guns, there are radar dishes, and the radar dishes, if you're caught by the radar, they relay a signal to one of the air bases. I think there are two of them on two of the islands, and then the air bases launch fighter planes to intercept you. So you can destroy the boats, you can destroy the tanks, you can destroy all the parts of this infrastructure. The only goal is to destroy the factories. You don't have to destroy these other things to win. But you can destroy these other pieces of infrastructure. But then the computer opponent, for lack of a better word, rebuilds these things that you destroy based on a priority system. There's a weight to each type of thing, anti-aircraft guns, airplanes, etc., and it rebuilds the things it considers most valuable first. So there's an entire simulation running underneath you. And then to increase the tension of the game, there are six factories. As you destroy factories, the enemy response gets more intense. They start creating more fighters. They start creating bombers. And eventually they are in the process of building a battleship. As you destroy more factories, the rate of building of this battleship increases. Once the battleship launches, if you give them enough time to launch the battleship, The battleship goes after your carrier. Your helicopter is launched from a carrier. If that battleship destroys your carrier, it's game over. So there's like this ticking time bomb to keep the intensity going that if you take too long, you might be too late and this battleship launches and all is lost. So as a shooting game, it's whatever. But it's so fascinating that he created this entire intricate system underneath it. Definitely a harbinger of things to come. I'm just skipping around the game right now. Not only was this published by Broderboon, which we did cover before. Yes. You can really see in the layout of the city and the layout of the factories and everything else that's going on, sort of the bones, the framework of what SimCity is. Absolutely. As you said, it was published by Broderboon. Basically what he did, you know, he lived in the Bay Area. The Bay Area had the largest concentration of computer game companies at that time. So he just went around all the computer game companies in the Bay Area with his game and was like, hey, anyone want to publish this? Broderbund was interested. So it ended up being published by Broderbund, which ended up being a very fortuitous thing for our good friend, Mr. Wright, because on the Commodore 64, it sold fine for the time period. But we have to remember that in this period of time, We've talked about this many times, particularly in our 100,000 for 100,000 episode when we were going through the bestsellers in the 80s. At this time in the early 80s, selling a few tens of thousands of units was considered to be a hit. There were a few factors to this. Some of it was just penetration of the market. Some of it was piracy, which was certainly a problem. Raid on Bugling Bay sold about 20 or 30,000 copies, which was considered fine at the time. I mean, everyone was happy with that, but it's not a huge amount of units. However, as we've talked about in some of our Broderbund episodes, Broderbund had very early connections with Japan and very early connections with game developers and game publishers in Japan. What this meant is that Broderbund, through licensing deals with Japanese companies like Hudson Soft, got their games on the new Nintendo family computer very early well before it was ever released in the United States. Broderboon licensed Raid on Bungling Bay to Hudson Soft, and it was released on the family computer in early 1985. This was still the period of the so-called Famicom boom, when just about everything on the family computer was selling. So this was a port done by Hudson Soft. Will Wright didn't directly make it, 
But it was his game. He got royalties from Broderbund, who got royalties from Hudson Soft when they sold copies in Japan. On the family computer, it sold 750,000 units. Few more than a few tens of thousands. So as Will Wright himself put it, he got so much royalty money from Raid on Bungling Bay that he was basically set for the next two or three years. He didn't really have to do much for the next two or three years, because he could live off of that royalty money. If he hadn't gone with Broderbund, that would not have happened, because, you know, it would have done the same 20, 30, 40, 50,000 units in the United States and then been done, because nobody else in the U.S. was sending their content over to Japan to be on the family computer at this time. That was just Broderbund. Yeah, that worked out pretty well for him. The game was a smashing success. What does Will do now? Once again, he plays. He can afford to. He's had his big success. He plays. And what he discovered is that the tools he used to create Raid on Bungling Bay were particularly fascinating to him. As part of creating the game, of course, in this early period, there was no such thing as middleware. If you wanted to accomplish something, if you wanted a program that could do something for you, a character editor or whatever, you, you had to make your own tools. You had to do that yourself. He actually made his tools for the game on the Apple II because he already knew the Apple II very well. And then he created a program and a little piece of hardware, a cable, that allowed him to transfer data from the Apple II to the Commodore 64. They were both 6502-based computers, so obviously there are some differences, but it was relatively simple to come up with a software program and a piece of hardware that would allow him to create stuff on the Apple II and then send it over to the Commodore 64. Two of the big things that he created to create Raid on Bugling Bay were called Chedit and Wedit. Those very clever names are just Character Editor, C-H, Character Edit, and World Editor, W, World Edit. Chet it and wet it. By this time, the Lisa had come out, the Apple Lisa, which was one of the first commercialized computers that had a, a graphical user interface, a GUI interface. He had created tools, I don't know if they were this way from the beginning of Bungling Bay, but they might have been, and certainly by the time he's done with Bungling Bay and he's still playing with them, he's created tools that allow him to use a graphical user interface of some kind in order to place objects in the world. The character editor defined his characters because you could do custom characters on the Commodore 64 and define the color palettes and all of that. So he created these custom objects for his background, things like the blue ocean, the green land, the highways, everything else, created the custom characters. And then he used his world editor program to place these objects on the map. He painted his map, essentially. He drew it that way. He discovered that he was actually particularly interested in that 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 was actually in some ways more interested in what he is sometimes referred to as his dumb helicopter game. It was just fun building things on these islands. So the ever-insatiably curious Will Wright decided to go further with this. And again, at this point, he's not even thinking about a game. He said this himself in interviews. So, I mean, this isn't speculation. I mean, he said that when he first started this, he was not thinking about a game. It was just his insatiable curiosity again. He got interested through all of this in the idea of city planning and how you build out a metropolitan area, build out a city. He wasn't thinking about doing this as a game or as a program for other people. It goes back to what we said about his childhood. This is a guy 
that when he was a kid, if he read about the Wright Flyer, he would want to build a model of the Wright Flyer. He's getting interested in civic planning and city planning and urban planning. So he's like, well, this editing program is fun. I'll combine these things and I'll make this editing program more robust and use this as a way to model some of the stuff that I'm learning about in city planning. That's how it started, just self-discovery. Just the Montessori kid doing another Montessori assignment, just as an adult in his 20s. As he starts getting involved with this, a neighbor of his, you know, he's looking for reading materials, going to the libraries, checking out books. A neighbor of his tells him, well, if you're interested in all the city planning stuff, you have got to read the work of Jay Forrester. Now we have to go on an extended, patented, they create worlds tangent, Mr. Jeffrey, because we do need to talk about one Mr. J. Forrester and the entire concept of urban dynamics. Not urban planning, just urban dynamics. That's right. For those of you that are actually math people and work with models, I am so very sorry for the explanation you are about to hear and can only beg your forgiveness. If you would like forgiveness, feel free to email us and we will send you forgiveness stickers in the form of They Create World stickers, which I have tons of (laughs) and would love to send you as a forgiving present. There you go. So Jay Forrester is someone we've actually talked about before because his first claim to fame before the creation of system dynamics, before the creation of urban dynamics, was as the pioneer of real-time computing with the whirlwind computer at the Lincoln Laboratory at MIT. We did a whole episode on that. I don't know if Will Wright or Jay Forrester ever met. I mean, they were certainly alive at the same time for a long time. Jay Forrester only just died a few years ago. It wouldn't surprise me if they met at some point, but they certainly hadn't met by the time Will Wright started reading his books. But I think that if they ever did meet, they would have definitely found themselves to be something of kindred spirits. Jay Forrester. And believe me, this all connects back. I call it a tangent, but this is actually supremely important to understanding SimCity. Jay Forrester was born in 1918 on a cattle ranch in Nebraska, middle of nowhere. His parents were educated. His father was college educated, and his mother also attended college, so I'm not sure that she graduated. They had bought this ranch in 1910. Both of his parents were school teachers. They owned the ranch, but they also worked at times as school teachers. They were educated people, but they were out in the middle of nowhere at a time when things like electric power and running water were just starting to appear in the middle of nowhere. This created an environment for Forrester to really tinker and discover. First of all, they did have a fairly modern house for the time. His mother refused to move out to the middle of nowhere unless they built a place with running water. Young Jay Forrester started experimenting with electrical engineering as he built a generator as a teenager, a wind power generator, to provide electricity to the ranch. So he was inquisitive from a young age, just like Will Wright. He was drawn to electrical engineering. He was drawn to engineering, just like Will Wright was. And he was a very bright child and excellent student. Graduated college in 1939, and then took up a research assistant position at MIT. This was a period of time, I mean, MIT has always been a fine school, but this is a period of time when MIT really became 
supercharged because World War II is about to begin here. World War II was the first war that really harnessed a military-industrial complex. It was a war that was won just as much by science as it was by boots on the ground. Of course, the atomic bomb is the most dramatic example of that. But there were all sorts of advances being made in technology, things like radar, things like new bomb sites, new aircraft stabilizers, all sorts of things, new range-finding equipment for artillery, all sorts of new technological doodads that were very important to the war effort. The government recognized the importance of this, so they had been partnering with both the private sector and with universities in order to, to provide money for research projects that would be beneficial. MIT already had some fine research labs looking into some of these things even before World War II. When America entered World War II, they got all sorts of funding, and they were at the forefront of a lot of the technological development going on. We talked about the Seminar Whirlwind episode. I mean, that's the whole reason real-time computing was birthed at MIT, was due to some of these military projects. At first, when he first joined, because this was before anyone really much had a concept of even computers, there were a couple of random projects around the country and the world, but it wasn't a big thing yet, he was first involved in the relatively new field of servo mechanisms. Basically, and I mean really basically because I'm not an engineer, a servo mechanism is a device that automatically generates a result through a calculation based on negative feedback. So let's say that you have your finger and you want to touch your nose. Your nose, for the purposes of our exercise, is at a fixed location in space. Your finger needs to reach that fixed location in space in order to touch your nose. The negative feedback in this case is the distance between your finger and your nose. You know, the coordinates of it in in XYZ, whatever. By figuring out that negative feedback, what that gap is between your finger and your nose, and by calculating that based on that negative data of this is by how much we are currently missing your nose, that's why it's negative, the servo mechanism then is able to make that calculation and then automatically through its mechanism, bridge that gap between your finger and your nose and make it so that your finger is touching your nose. That, I hope to God, is a servo mechanism in a nutshell. A device that makes a calculation based on negative feedback to create a desired result. That's the theory of servo mechanisms. I'll do some research and see if I can find some nice videos to help explain that one. (laughs) But that is, to my understanding, which is admittedly limited, how a servo mechanism works. It's performing a calculation based on negative feedback to update the position of things to achieve a desired result through uh, mechanization. Bomb sites, aircraft stabilizers, range finders, these are some of the devices that have a military application that use servo mechanisms. Forrester joined the Servo Mechanism Laboratory at MIT in 1939. It was already considered one of the finest, if not the finest, servo mechanism labs in the country. As a result, it got lots of money pumped into it during World War II, and it was out of this that the Whirlwind Project was born, which started as a flight simulator, and as a flight simulator, it was also using servo mechanisms. That's how we get to Whirlwind and Sage and all of that stuff that we talk about in our episode on real-time computing, so you can check there for more information. We won't get in-depth on that now. The important thing is, is that after 
pioneering all of this real-time computing stuff. Forrester, very much like our Will Wright, again, they're definitely kindred spirits, felt that he had kind of done all he could in the moment in computers. Not that computers were a solved problem forever and ever. Obviously, computers continue to evolve to this day. But he felt that he had kind of done his thing in computers, and he was looking for his next challenge. And you see, the reason he even got the Whirlwind Project is because the director of the lab thought that he was about to leave because he was bored. So he needed a new project. So he got Whirlwind. It's like he's another one of these guys, similar to Wright, that just flits from thing to thing, though he did manage to get himself a college degree in there somewhere as part of the process. So he decided he'd basically solve the computer thing by 1956, and so he wanted to move on to something else. That something else ended up being a relatively new school at MIT called the Sloan School of Management. The Sloan School of Management was established through a grant provided in 1950 by the Sloan Foundation that was dedicated to advancing the theories of one Mr. Alfred P. Sloan, who believed that there was a place for more scientific rigor and scientific inquiry into management. Management is kind of considered, in in a lot of ways, a soft skill, people management. You know, you act a lot on intuition, you act a lot based on the characteristics of the individual you're dealing with right in front of you, and there's a lot of that kind of give and take and, and gut work that goes into management. Sloan really believed that there was a place for more scientific rigor, that you could systematize management and understand macro concepts in management by uh, subjecting it to scientific evaluation and come up with a science of management, not just make it be all about the gut. They made this grant through the foundation to establish a school of management that would merge principles of science and business together. This is something that greatly appealed to Forrester, that he felt that there might be a place for him there, that this would be an exciting new challenge. So in 1956, he joined the new Sloan School of Business, which really, even though the grant was given in 1950, it took them a few years to build up. It was really not until 1956 that it was fully in operation. They offered a few classes before that, but this was really the start of it. And decided to dedicate himself to examining the scientific principles of management. It was in this new position that one of the first case studies he undertook was a case study at General Electric. General Electric had noticed that there was a lot of inconsistency and a lot of really bad fluctuations at one of its plants in the way that they procured materials. The way it's supposed to work, and I I don't have the full study in front of me, so I have to be a little vague here, but the way it's supposed to work is factory is required to maintain inventory at a particular level to make sure that production is uninterrupted. When stocks start to get low, employees are supposed to alert management that stock is getting low, and then management is supposed to order required materials to keep the stocks where they need to be. That's all very logical. But they found that they were having profound fluctuations and that they were having real trouble keeping their stock balanced with their demand for materials. They assumed that this had to do with external business factors. They assumed it had to do with the business climate, the market, 
all of this stuff. But Jay Forrester decided to look at it and was like, well, what if we can just examine this problem entirely through internal processes? What if this is not a general, oh, it's just the way the world is right now. It's just the business climate. It's just the market climate. What if it's not outside uncontrollable factors that are the problem, but what if there's something we can measure inside the organization, a system inside the organization that is not working the way it should and that we actually can fix? Sort of trying to understand the fundamental underlying process at a much deeper level instead of trying to intuit it. Exactly. And instead of just blaming it on things outside of the company's control, external business factors. Try to get down really down. Why aren't the employees maybe necessarily telling us when we're running out of materials? Stuff like that. Right. Basically, he was able to isolate the issue in terms of what's called a causal loop, where you basically... And again, very basically, because I am not a system dynamics engineer. But you have a stock, a thing that accumulates. And you have a flow, which is the rate of accumulation. By modeling environmental conditions that affect the stock and the flow of the stock, figuring out what the causal loop is that causes the stock to flow. And the negative feedback, again, taking from servo mechanism theory, which he had been very involved in at MIT, and figuring out the negative feedback that will decrease the stock and decrease the flow, figure out through computer modeling, because the computer is very important to all of this, and remember, he's a computer guy, figure out what is actually causing the flow of the stock to change, to go up or go down. Therefore, identify the systems and the ways you can alter the systems. What I believe he found, again, I don't have the study in front of me, but what I believe he found is that the managers themselves were actually causing the big swings in inventory because they would over or undercompensate for the amount of material they need. Like if stocks are starting to get low, they would get worried about stocks getting low and they would actually overcompensate in their ordering of stock in order to make sure they were keeping up with demand. By not applying consistent rigor to the way they were ordering new materials, it was causing these very small changes to have very large consequences. It's something basically to that effect. This was the beginning of this idea that Forrester was the father of called system dynamics. And then he wrote a book about it in, I believe, 1961, articulating the basic theory of system dynamics, which at its very simplest level is you have a stock and you have a flow, then you have a loop, and then you have negative feedback that can impact on that loop. And and there's way more complications, and there's lots of computer modeling, and there's equations. We won't even try to get into all of that. But at the very basic level, you're measuring a stock, you're measuring the flow, and you're figuring out the factors that create the flow, that cause the flow to increase or decrease. And so doing, you identify the dynamics of the system, and you have a way of improving a system or improving a process that is without bias and pays attention entirely to what you have in control yourself, internal factors, as opposed to external factors that you have no control over. So that's system dynamics. He comes up with this whole thing, like I said, 
He publishes a book on it in 1961 called Industrial Dynamics, because Industrial Dynamics in the beginning was another name for system dynamics. In between there, he had colleagues create modeling languages that they could use in the computer. You know, he spends several years working this all out. First, a language called Simple for simulation of industrial management problems with lots of equations, acronym. Then an improved version of the language called Dynamo for dynamic models that was developed in 1959. Then after he had these modeling languages developed and he could develop computer models, he published Industrial Dynamics in 1961. The root of this was entirely in business and almost entirely in industry, figuring out industrial processes. That's why the book was not called System Dynamics. It was called Industrial Dynamics. This changed in 1968 through a completely happenstance encounter that should have never happened in normal circumstances. In 1968, a gentleman by the name of John Collins, who had been a former mayor of Boston, of course, MIT is in Cambridge in the suburbs of Boston, was appointed as a visiting professor of urban affairs at MIT. The job that he was doing had nothing to do with computers, nothing to do with system dynamics, nothing to do with business management. But John Collins had contracted polio in the 1950s. He was forced to use a wheelchair and crutches to get around. I don't believe he was completely paralyzed, but he had very limited lower body mobility because of this polio outbreak. Because of this, he needed his office at MIT to be in a building that was reasonably handicapped accessible. Nobody was designing anything to be truly handicapped accessible at that period in history. But at the very least, he needed a building where he could park his car in like the garage or whatever, and then have access on the same level he parked his car to an elevator to be able to get to his office. Which these days, that's par for the course, but not in the 1960s. So it just so happened MIT didn't have many buildings like that. So they had to put him in the same building as that Jay Forrester was working in. So his office was next door to Jay Forrester's office, not because they were doing similar work, but because that was where they had to put him so that he could have access to the building. Of course, their colleagues at MIT, their office neighbors, they're going to talk. They're going to get to know each other. They're going to talk about the work they're doing. So they get to thinking about the problems in the modern city and how system dynamics may be usable to combat some of the problems in the modern city. Again, just like with the problem with the factory, the General Electric factory, people blamed a lot of external factors on the decline of the city. The flight to suburbia, the idea that people want to get out into the countryside or into suburbia where they can have a bigger, nicer house and a bigger yard and raise a family. There was all this examination of the ways that other places were more attractive than a city, but not so much examination about how a city could make itself more attractive just by doing things that was under the control of the city. You know, the city can't control if a developer decides to build a subdivision in a suburb out there because that's not their jurisdiction, but they can control the way their city is. It's really a stock and a flow problem again. The stock is your population. The flow is your population coming to and leaving the city. 
So it's a matter of figuring out what factors through computer modeling induce a population to come and go to a city while just looking at the city itself and not looking at external factors. It's system dynamics. They come up with this idea of the attractiveness of the city, and I don't mean how pretty the buildings look. The idea that a city is attractive to a certain point. When a city has a low enough population, it's attractive because there's more room for people. When facilities are kept updated, when buildings are kept updated with the latest amenities, that makes them more attractive. When buildings are aging and out of date, that makes them less attractive, and so people want to leave them. And yes, they leave them to the suburbs, but it's not just that they can buy a big new house in the suburbs. That's an external factor. It's also that they can't find an apartment or a condo or a house or whatever inside the city that is as attractive or more attractive than that one in the suburbs. Again, not attractive by looks, but attractive in terms of what it has to offer. So there are ways that a city can make itself more attractive to keep the population flowing into the city, keeping the stock flowing into the city instead of flowing out. Based on that work in 1969, Forrester and Collins published a book called urban dynamics, about how computer modeling can be used to figure out how to maintain a city in an attractive way to retain population. Urban dynamics remains to this day a very controversial, to my understanding, theory. A lot of people don't believe that urban dynamics actually solves anything in a city. For the purposes of our discussion today, we're not going to get into all of that, because we are not an urban planning podcast. We are a video game history podcast. We're not really interested on whether urban dynamics theory actually works or not, or whether you can build a better city by following the theories of Forrester and Collins. All we're concerned about is that circa 1984-1985, one Mr. Will Wright was told by his neighbor that if he's interested in modeling the way a city is planned and built, that he might want to check out this book, Urban Dynamics by Jay Forrester. Our friend Will Wright did, and he was absolutely fascinated by it, because whether it works or not, it is a computer modeling of a city. He starts to build this little program in late 84, early 85, somewhere around there, to use the principles of urban dynamics to model the growth of a city by combining it with the principles of his earlier fascination, the game of life. Urban dynamics models why people move to and from cities, the stock and the flow. But he's interested in the full how a city spreads, how it's built, how it grows, how it expands. Urban dynamics doesn't really dictate where the people end up settling within the city. It's just how can you keep the stock increasing instead of decreasing, but it doesn't say where you put the stock. But the game of life models propagation. You have some things here, and then they spread here because they have room to spread, or they don't spread here because it's overcrowded. So he created a model that combined urban dynamics and the game of life to model things like, say, I build a factory over here, and that factory pollutes. Then that pollution starts to spread. How does it spread? It propagates according to rules very similar to the rules of the game of life. It starts spreading across the board. Pollution creates negative feedback that makes an area that's polluted unattractive and causes our stock of people to flow away from that area where there's pollution. Or crime. 
crime increases as population increases. And how does the crime propagate? It propagates in a similar cellular automaton model like the game of life. As crime propagates, it's unattractive. So your stock flows away from it. So how do you combat that? You combat that with negative feedback. It's that servo mechanisms part, that systems dynamic part. The negative feedback is a police presence. Negative feedback of the police being there causes crime to recede. This makes an area more attractive, and your stock of people flow into this area that's now low crime. This is SimCity, in a nutshell. This is why we went on a giant tangent about system dynamics and urban dynamics. So you're saying that by getting a copy of Urban Dynamics, I can finally understand why I have to place a police station every other block in order to stop the cloud of red crime from spreading everywhere <laughs> in my SimCity game. I mean, it couldn't hurt. Couldn't hurt. With all these books we recommend, we have to start a, a uh, They Create Worlds book club. Right. Or why you need to build your whole city with railroads and forget about those stupid road things that just cause traffic congestion and make everyone not want to live there anymore. He's starting to do this modeling based on Forrester's work, based on the game of life. I'm sure based on some other things he's picked up here and there. He's building his own computer models, all for his own edification, just to have fun with this, to help him learn that Montessori approach. It's all connected. I feel like I'm one of these conspiracy guys. Now, it's all connected, people. Jay Forrester, Will Wright, John Conway. Broder Boond. They all did this together. It's all connected. It really is all connected, which is why we did one of our patented They Create Worlds tangents here. He's working on this for about six months, give or take. And then he starts adding graphics to it, which is, again, just to make it more interesting as he's working on it. Once he adds the graphics to it, then it starts to look like a game to him. Then it's starting to look like this may be something that people actually have fun with. He starts actively developing it as a game, which he originally calls Micropolis. Which is, you know, a pun because a metropolis is a big city. This is a metropolis builder on a microcomputer, so it's Micropolis. So he starts consciously building this out as a game. He takes it to Broderbund, and the people at Broderbund, Gary Carlston primarily, who kind of heads product development there during this time period, they're like, yeah, this is actually kind of neat. There may be something here. They took an option on it, essentially, and they were like, there's definitely the germ of something here. Go keep working on it. You know, see what you can do with it. He keeps developing Micropolis on the Commodore 64, but he can never quite get Broderbund to take it. He keeps developing his models, and he adds other stuff in, most famous one being the Disasters. At first, there was just a bulldozer. He had a bulldozer in there because you needed a way to correct mistakes if you placed something you didn't want. So he put the bulldozer in, and then as people played the version with the bulldozer in it, what he realized is, you know, they would use the bulldozer for the first time, see something go kaboom, think, oh my God, that's hilarious. And then they would go make more things go kaboom. And they'd be like, that's hilarious too. And then after a while, they'd get tired of things going kaboom, but then they'd be left with the consequences of their actions, like buildings being out of power and roads not leading to where they need to anymore and all of that stuff. And then he discovered that people would have fun rebuilding. Because they're like, oh, I've destroyed everything now, and I'm kind of sick of destroying things, but now that I've messed everything up, I need to go rebuild it. So he saw that behavior, and that's what caused him to code in the disasters, because he was like, well, okay, if people think this uh, cycle of destruction and recreation is kind of fun, why don't I model that in the game? 
The natural disasters had nothing to do with urban dynamics or the game of life. That just had to do with watching people play and, and seeing the way people interacted with this game he was creating. He kept refining his models. He added other fun things like the disasters in, but Broderbund would not take it because at the end of the day, they were like, okay, this is great. This is fun. Building the cities is cool, but I couldn't help but notice you don't have the win condition in here yet. When are we getting the win condition? <laughs> Will Wright's like, um, no. There is no win condition. The point is that you're building the city and watching it grow based on these principles of urban dynamics. Broderbund's like, okay, that's great, but this is a computer game. And computer games you play to win. You either win the game or you lose. Otherwise, you fool around with it for just a little bit, and then you get bored and you never play again. And your game makes no money. So we really kind of need a win condition. Broderbund tell White what to do. Yeah. White make video game with win condition. Exactly. So at the end of the day, they would not publish it. They thought he was cool. They liked him. They thought he was doing some neat things. But you win or lose games. You don't just keep playing perpetually just for the sheer joy of building a city. Who's going to do something dumb like that? Win condition. <laughs> I'll show you win condition. <laughs> at that point, he takes some time off. You know, he's still got his royalties from Raid of Bungling Bay. At this time, his daughter has been born. His wife's a working artist, and, and part of their arrangement is that they agree that they need to equally share in the raising of, of the kid, because she's working, and he, up to that point, was working. Around 1986, he takes a year off to raise his child and kind of sets this thing aside. That might have been the end of it, except that during this period of time, he also started attending these regular gatherings that were held by a Stanford computer software retailer. This guy would hold these pizza parties where he would invite local developers and whatnot to just come in and talk about what they're working on. You know, I think it was a way for him to keep his ear to the ground for his software business and whatnot. So in 1987, while attending one of these parties, Will Wright describes this Micropolis game that he's not really working on anymore. He's kind of set it aside because Broderman doesn't want it. He describes this thing that he had been working on. One of the attendees of this particular event is a developer by the name of Jeff Braun, who has a very small company that is making a font package called Calligrapher for the Commodore 64. Braun is just blown away by this concept. He said in part it's because he had recently played a game that will become very important later in the Will Wright story called Little Computer People originally developed by Rich Gold and then modified and enhanced and finished by David Crane at Activision, which we've, I believe, talked about in our Activision episode. But it was basically a dollhouse simulation where you had this little computer person that was in a house and he would walk around the house and he would need to be fed and he would need to be entertained and he would write you letters when he needed stuff and he would play little card games and whatnot with you. It was kind of like this little person in a fishbowl that you could watch go about his life. Braun had bought this, and he had been fooling around with it, and he had been experimenting with it, and he wanted to see what would happen if you just stopped feeding your little computer person. Long story short, eventually he starves, but he does all of these things in, in the meantime to try to get your attention, sending the notes or trying to get your attention by pounding on the screen, so to speak, and whatnot. 
his co-workers, friends, whoever it was, they were kind of almost in a way horrified by this. They were kind of getting a little attached to this little computer person that didn't even exist and were like, why aren't you feeding this guy? And, and he was surprised to see that there was an emotional resonance there. From this experience, he got the idea that there could be a connection and there could be an interest forged between a person and a computer program where you're just interacting with a simulation and you're not necessarily playing to win. So he comes up to write and is like, this sounds amazing. You've got to do this. You've got to finish this. I want to be involved in this. Let's do this thing. Based on Braun's enthusiasm, Wright agrees to go in with them, and they found a new company together. Braun's got his own little company doing the font stuff, but that's not what they co-opt. They found a completely new company together. Wright puts a lot of his remaining Bungling Bay royalties into this, and in 1987, they found this company, Maxis, with the intent of getting SimCity out to market. They get the rights back from Broderbund. Broderbund's fine with it. They're like, we're not doing anything with it. Yeah, you can have the rights back. They restart work on uh, Micropolis, which uh, eventually, at the recommendation of a friend, becomes named SimCity. By this time, the Commodore 64 is long in the tooth, so they hire a couple of developers and actually retarget the program for the Macintosh and the Amiga to 16-bit, more advanced computers that will allow them to realize their vision better. So they pay a couple of programmers to work on these two versions, and they get what we know as SimCity working. And of course, they're going to publish it themselves. They don't need to worry about a publisher anymore. They're going to publish through Maxis. The problem is, even though they're publishers, they do need to get this game distributed. They're new guys, they're tiny, they don't have the clout to get on retail shelves. So they come back to Broderbund, whom Wright is still on very good terms with, and say to them, okay, well, I've finished this game, now SimCity, we're going to publish it, but we need a distributor. We've talked before about both Broderbund and other companies at this time were developing affiliated label or affiliated developer relationships where they would work with a publisher. The publisher would have most of the risk. They would have most of the upfront costs of creating the game. But the big publisher, the Electronic Arts, Activision's Broderboons of the world, would take care of the distribution for a cut of the profits. It's low risk for the big publisher because they're not putting much money into it, but it's high reward if the game ends up selling. And we've talked about these relationships across our EA episodes, our Activision episodes, and our Broderbund episodes, so we won't go into more detail here. But basically, they complete an affiliated publisher relationship with Broderbund. Broderbund agrees to do this for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Macintosh has opened up the computer market to a new set of users. It's being used by small businesses to do desktop publishing work. It's going out to a more adult audience. It's not just kids necessarily playing these games, and they feel like this new set of small business owners and artists that are buying these Macintosh computers may be more interested in a program like this than the typical computer game player. They may be able to create that market. The other thing is, at this time, a gentleman by the name of Don Daglow has joined the company as a producer. Don Daglow had created a simulation game. It was still a simulation game with a goal. It wasn't just open-ended, but he created a simulation game called Utopia on the Intellivision back in the day. He really believed in the value of simulation programs, so he became a real champion for the game as well. So with this new confluence of factors and the fact that they didn't have to put up much money since they were just distributing— Broderbund did agree to do the game. The one thing that they did ask for, and which Maxis did oblige them on, is they did ask for something in there that had win-loss conditions. So they created a series of scenarios. 
which I know you're familiar with because I know the first time I ever played SimCity was at your house. So I know you're very familiar with the old SimCity. So in addition to the freeform, just build your own city however you want mode, there were a series of scenarios where you had objectives to raise the population by a certain level in a certain amount of time or recover from a natural disaster in a certain amount of time so that there would be some win conditions to make it more game-like. So they did that. Broderbund got what they wanted, sort of, but the main game was still just create. The game is released in 1989, initially for the Macintosh and the Amiga. Then something funny happens. Maybe because it's so different from anything else that's come before. Maybe because it feels like it's something that is less of a game for children and is more of a fun tool for adults. For whatever reason, the mainstream press which in this period of time does not pay attention to computer games at all, takes notice of SimCity. A flattering review appears in the New York Times, and then Time magazine, for the first time ever, reviews a computer game, SimCity, and raves about it and tells people to go out and buy it. SimCity crosses over into the mainstream in a way computer games did not back then. I mean, yes, you had video games, you had the Nintendo Entertainment System and Mario and Zelda selling millions of copies, but those were children's entertainment. Those were toys. Mainstream press covered that video game industry, but they covered them as toys for your kids. Computer games were not really covered by the mainstream press because it was a smaller market. Here's the mainstream press not only covering it, but covering it as an adult, sophisticated form of entertainment, something for everybody. It's one of computer gaming's first mass market phenomenons. As a result, it does something that computer games pretty much never, ever do. Through word of mouth, positive reviews, press coverage, etc., its sales grow steadily over time. Its first year on the market, 1989, comes out early in the year, February-ish, so it's out for most of the year. It sells 100,000 units. That's really good for a PC game. Yep. It's already a hit. That represents the word getting out to kind of the general people that already play computer games. I mean, the computer magazines gave it rave reviews as well. And believe me, everyone's in it for the city building mode. No one cares about the scenarios. Everyone's enthralled by the core gameplay, the core dynamics. In 1990, it sells 250,000 more units. Twice more. Twice in a bit. By this time, it's starting to get even more coverage about how this is more than a game. This is a tool for simulating the world. This is educational. This is something that even maybe grown adults working with the problems in today's cities could use to solve problems, even as a publicity stunt. And it was just a publicity stunt. In the Democratic primary for mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, they hold a competition where they have the five candidates in the primary all design a city in Sim City, and they set victory conditions. I don't know what they were, but they set victory conditions for who would have the best city, and they declared a winner. I'm sure entirely coincidentally, and I mean that, I'm sure entirely coincidentally, the person that won the city-building competition also won the mayoral race. You know, that first year it's getting out to the gamers, 
Then it's getting that positive mainstream press like this is a great game. So it's getting out to more of the public and the sales increase. Then it starts being heralded as this great simulation tool, this great educational thing, this thing with value beyond a game. So in 1991, it sells 500,000 more copies. We're up to 850,000 copies so far. Right, for a computer game, which is incredible. Of course, they get it ported to the IBM PC. It wasn't originally released for that, but they do get it out on PC. A couple years later, it even comes out on the Super Nintendo, a version that I played the heck out of, and which had a victory condition. You know, so it's crossing over mainstream in all of these different ways. It's selling hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies. It's put Maxis on a sure footing to begin, and it has made Will Wright one of the superstars of the computer game industry. That is the perfect place to end our first part of our look at Will Wright. His rise from jack-of-all-trades, interested in everything, but never settling down to one thing— to deciding to be a computer game designer, to creating one of the most influential computer games of all time. When we return next time, we'll look at how the Sim franchise evolved over the next decade, and then how Will Wright somehow managed to top himself again by creating an even bigger phenomenon a decade later with The Sims. Well, I guess I'm going to have to do some reticulating some splines. So (laughs) we'll see you next time on They Create Worlds as you try to figure out how many references we made in this episode. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. You can also help by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license. And now we get to watch all of the reruns of Summer Games Done Quick. <laughs>